Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today is my friend... Will. I am Will with The Church Split. Will Hess with the podcast and YouTube channel that is growing in popularity. I've seen you grow so fast since I uh, first became aware of you, um, and you've been growing fast at, with a channel that is comprised... Well, I'll just let you tell us. Now, before I let Will talk, we are going today to talk about an article, as you probably know from the thumb and title, that is basically saying that when people are deconstructing, what they don't necessarily need is apologetics, which I'm not... That necessarily is doing a lot of work there because I don't know that we get it with that much of a caveat in the article, but that's the way we're going to say it. Um, But before we get into that, Will... Uh, tell us about your show and a little bit about your background that that um, that to familiarize our audience. All right. Yeah, I'll give it all in a nutshell here. So I am with the church split. This was an idea that me and my co-host Brian cooked up in a Taco Bell. <laughs> the name was is meant to be ironic. It is not meant to actually split your church. But the point is, is the fact that there's a lot of divisive topics uh, in the church and nobody wants to talk about it in a sense of brotherly love and it within an ecumenical sort of, hey, we're still united. So the whole point of the church split is talking about things biblically, challenging the status quo a little bit and helping people escape or echo chambers. Now, uh, Braxton does a great job at representing a multiple amount of theological views on his channel, which is one of the reasons why I became a Trinity Radio listener. But my background, I was a uh, I was a pastor. I've been a pastor in the pastoral ministry for almost 10 years now. I was a lead pastor for about five years. And I experienced two church splits during that time over crazy things. So I decided we should jump into it. But one of the things that got me excited about ministry and pastoral ministry in general was the idea of uh, apologetics, because I realized that's where we should all be united in, is defending uh, defending the faith and proclaiming the faith. So that is where that came from. My co-host, Brian, was originally just a producer, uh, and he, too much to his chagrin, has uh, now joined me as a co-host, and he does not enjoy it as much being on that side of the camera, but I think he adds a good element, so we keep him. He adds a fantastic element. He is the Samwise Gamgee to your Frodo. Uh, you know frodo is actually completely whiny and wimpy so i'm actually a little upset about that but that's okay (laughs) okay well uh so one of the exciting things one of the reasons i'm glad to have you on and hopefully anyone who's a trinity college of the bible and theological seminary student or thinking about becoming a student is that you are a student at our great school and one that we're very very proud of so i'm excited and honored to have you on today Yes, well, I appreciate it. I am a very proud student at Trinity. I evangelize Trinity quite a bit. I have not been hitting my studies as hard as I'd like. My job makes it difficult, but I did sign up for another class in December, so we're good. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So it's a good time. We'll slowly work through it, but my my schedule's crazy. Okay, now, Will, um, you know how things are with me and Pritchett on this show, so I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The way I may approach what we're going to talk about today may not be the way you want to approach it in terms of the straightforwardness with which you speak or the snarkiness which may exist when Pritchett is here. But if you wish if you wish to be more straightforward, uh, you're a guest on my show, but you're not my show. So feel free. okay? (laughs) and um, but but that said, we are going to be looking at an article today from one Rebecca Drumstaw. I hope I'm saying that right. Drumsta, maybe? I don't know. Drumsta, Drumsta, I don't know. If we're missing that, Rebecca, it is not our intention to miss that. 
And what I want to do is I, I actually don't think everything in this article is wrong. I think much of it needs caveat is the primary thing. Um, and the article is called Christian Apologetics is Not the Solution to Faith Deconstruction. You can find that at Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, Drumstaw, D-R-U-M-S-T-A.com. And so I, I hope that you'll check that out. But um, initial thoughts on this, Will. Uh, we happen to be reading the same article at exactly the same time <laughs> when I called him a moment ago to come on. Yeah, it was actually funny. I'm sitting there reading. Uh, so she originally posted something about like, if you're a recovering fundamentalist, you're a legalist. And I am part of the RFP network, the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast Network. And I read that. I was like, wow, that is oddly legalistic to say. Because <laughs> uh, if you disagree with me, now you're a legalist. Right. Uh, and I just found that to be hilariously ironic. But then I saw this other article pop up and I was reading it. And then suddenly I got a call from the one Braxton Hunter and I was very confused. And then I found out we were literally reading the same article and I was rolling my eyes. But like at the same time, there are, there's legitimacies in here, but then there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of things that deserve caveat. And just so everyone knows, I do tend to be a little sassy. It's not my intent uh, to be ar arrogant sounding. I just like to have a good time. They're so, used to it. They, they get bored when it's just me because I I'm too nice. Yes. And that's why Pritchett has the spice. He's the habanero. You need a little bit of it. <laughs> All right. So let's get to reading this. I'll read it out loud and then we can talk about it. Okay. Sounds Christian good. apologetics is not the solution to faith deconstruction. Um, and then she defines a couple of things here. Apologetics is defined as systematic argumentative discourse. And by the way, when we say, you know, when we say that apologetics may involve giving arguments, does that mean that we have to necessarily be nasty when we're giving the arguments? Not a bit. Yeah. So argumentative here should not be taken to mean argumentative like you might be with your spouse or your kids or are with you or whatever. It's just saying that they provide arguments. That's that there's nothing about. And that's going to be important in a moment because we're going to come back to that. And then a branch of theology devoted to the defense of the divine origin and authority of Christianity and uh, I just want to say that uh, I, I say this to all of our students. You'll hear people referred to as Trump apologists or Clinton apologists or, uh, you know, Biden apologists, because all apologetics means I don't care where the Merriam Webster, I don't care what Merriam Webster says about it. All apologetics really means is to defend something. So there are Muslim apologists. There are Christian apologists. There are political apologists to a, to be an apologist just means you're providing a defense. And so, uh, that's important. We happen to be Christian apologists, but you can't just say anyone who has the term apologist is in this same category uh, that has to do with theology and defending Christianity. Any thoughts on that? Correct. Part? There's even atheist apologists, as much as atheists would rather not say that they do have them, but they do. Uh, so yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. It comes from the Greek word apologia, as you already know, which means to make a defense. Mm -hmm. So when we're saying that... Uh, Christian apologetics is not the solution to faith deconstruction. All I'm thinking is that you're saying Christians defending and making a defense of their faith is not the solution to faith deconstruction. And I'm going, but deconstruction is falling away. So shouldn't you try to bring some sort of defense? And that doesn't have to be nasty. It doesn't have to be a fight, but an argument in this sense, we're talking about a formal argument, right? So, right. uh, Acts 17, it is a Christian thing, right, to reason the faith. So that's the thing that drives me crazy. People tell, say I'm argumentative all the time. I'm like, I'm not argumentative in the sense of being nasty, but I am argumentative in the fact that we're going to bring a formal argument and reason the faith. That's biblical. And I'm okay Amen. with you bringing a counterpoint, right? 
bring a counterpoint. Let's have a good discussion. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, you're right about Act 17. And in fact, it follows very much what looks like a classical apologetics approach where you have he's arguing for one true God who made everything. And he even points to something in their own context, the altar to the one known God to begin that case. And then later we hear about the resurrection. Of course, Paul gets cut off, never even gets to mention Jesus by name. We don't know if he was going to do that as a part of the uh, evangelism technique, but he gets cut off because people got upset with him. So, uh, but that's apologetics in the Bible. And so it's, it's very interesting. So let's, uh, let's, let's read a little more because these definitions are going to become important even in this first little section. Um, an apologist is then one who speaks or writes in defense of something or someone. Yes, that's true. Growing up in Christian evangelical fundamentalism, apologetics was huge. Well, that's interesting because it wasn't where I come from. <laughs> Same. I was. I read that. I was like, "What church you go to?" <laughs> right, and it also makes me wonder. Like, you know how ninety percent of atheist YouTube channels are devoted to talking about young Earth creationism and evolution. Well, regardless of what one thinks about that, there's much more to apologetics than any discussion about evolution, and um, and so. Uh, it may be that growing up, there was a lot of talk about how bad evolution was, but not anything that we would recognize as modern apologetics per se. Correct. So she may have heard about that because I certainly did hear about that, but I didn't hear anything about the Kalam cosmological argument, arguments from contingency, teleological arguments, those kind of things. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it for me. I only heard young earth creationism and that was it. That's the most I heard. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that that's coming from because I found much later that the the apologetics wells much deeper than anything of the age of the dirt. So, right, right. (laughs) Drenched in this form of thinking, she says, I have attended lengthy seminars, read books, listened to countless sermons and presentations, practiced my own arguments, and yes, even had to take a worldview test with my fiance before we were given a blessing to wed. Now, you know, as is probably going to come out, Will, you actually do have some background with abuses of one sort or other in the church. Now, I'm going to let you speak to that in a moment, but but what I, what I want to say about this is I don't know whether I would ever give someone a worldview test or what that exactly means before I would marry them, but it doesn't sound like a bad thing. <laughs> it's, like it's necessarily a bad thing. Find out what you believe before I put my name on a document that seals you both in the sight of God for the rest of your lives. Yeah, that's, that, that's what I was thinking too. Where I'm like, I don't know what that means, but I mean, being unequally yoked is a biblical principle. And then the other thing I'm thinking of is, look, all right, and I, well, I want to stay away from politics, but I'm going to jump into politics. So I'll Go contradict myself. But it would be like, all right, if you have a hardcore conservative or maybe even a libertarian and then a hardcore progressive leftist, and it's like, you two would probably, before you guys got together, want to make sure you see things similarly. Otherwise, right. your marriage will be horrible. <laughs> right. So that's all I'm thinking of here. I'm like, yeah, that's not necessarily bad. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like a recently we were watching a show, my wife and I, and it was like a marriage between a young Christian man and a young Muslim woman. And they both were saying how important their faith was to them. And I'm thinking, um, I sure would love to hear those conversations because I don't know how your faiths can be important to you. And yet you choose to unite with these set of conflicting beliefs. It's not that people can't disagree and be married. I do that on a daily basis. I'm sure you do too. <laughs> but, uh, but, but that doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to bind ourselves to a faith tradition that is completely at odds with the other faith tradition, especially when your highest devotion is not supposed to be to your spouse, but to God. Right, exactly. 
Um, yeah. And then as far as, uh, I mean, I actually, we'll talk about that here in a minute. You keep going. Yeah. Well, this is where I wanted to get to. Miriam Webster supplied the definition she says for the words above and reading them with fresh eyes was insightful. The three words which stood out to me were argumentative authority and defense. Apologetics can be synonymous with the term defending your faith. Yes. I don't know why that's something we should be ashamed of, but I get a sampling or a flavor of what I think she's got problems with with these three terms. And, and I want to, this is why I made this big deal about argumentative a moment ago. To be argumentative, I mean, to, to give an argument doesn't mean you have to be argumentative in any nasty sense. It just means you're providing a reasoned explanation of why someone should believe a particular thing. Correct. And authority, where does that term come up? Well, it's in the definition of apologetics, a branch of theology devoted to the defense of the divine origin and authority of Christianity. If you are wearing, if you are a professing Christian and you don't think that Christianity contains within it authority, then I don't know in what meaningful sense you're a Christian. I agree. And that, that's exactly what sucks out to me, too, where it, there, how is there any wrong, anything wrong then with appealing to the authority? If you follow the divine God of Christianity or any God, any religion, insert any religion here, all of them make an appeal to authority. Mm -hmm. So if you subscribe to that religion, no matter what your faith is, you are appealing to that authority of set beliefs. And I would even say that with atheism as well. If you subscribe to atheism, you subscribe to that certain authority of what that particular realm would be. So again, it's really nonsensical to me, especially because throughout this, we kind of have a moral outrage, right? There's a little bit of a moral frustration. Uh, also in the, in the same article of if you're recovering fundamentalists, you're a legalist, same thing. It's, but you're still claiming an authority of some sort of moral outrage there or a meaning, a full outrage, but that's an appeal to an authority. Right. Whether you like yeah. it or not. Yeah. And, and for those that may be atheists, because we have a big atheist audience here, and for those that would say, well, atheism is just about one thing, whether or not there's a God, it's not about anything else. We have at least three episodes where we have pulled together the data on what atheists believe in the United States anyway, and they are very much united in the high 80s or 90 percentiles on almost every really important issue, uh, at least with social issues today. So, um, so yeah, we have authorities. Um, but and, and defense, you know, this is interesting to me, Will, because what she's doing, what Rebecca is doing, and Rebecca, I, I, hope, you find, I hope you find this in the, in the nature of a friendly criticism rather than me being rude throughout this, um, because I love you as a sister in Christ. But I, I want to say this is uh, an important thing. You are giving a defense of a particular position about how we should react to people ecclesiologically, and you're, you're giving a defense of why we shouldn't give defenses. And I find that to be self-referentially incoherent. But right. of course, Will, as I say that, I'm realizing that the tone of this article is that that sort of logical implication is part of what the author doesn't find helpful. But right. you see, if I'm going to take what you're saying to be true, it needs to follow logically and make logical sense. And you're giving a defense uh, of why you shouldn't give defenses. Right. And that's exactly why I, I, this stuck out to me. I'm like, so you're giving an apologetic on why we shouldn't give apologetics. 
That's all I was thinking of when I was reading this. Uh, the other issue was, and I, uh, when it came to the recovering fundamentalist one, the one that led me to this one, uh, maybe we could put that in a description below or something. But mm-hmm. the, what sticks out to me on that one is, and I brought this up to her because she was in the, the same group and we had the conversation and she just said, well, I'm speaking from my heart and I would like you to respect my perspective. And I said, and, she, and because we're both mind, body, and soul, so it's not just logic that matters. But in order to have a coherent, not just thought, but a coherent feeling that interacts with reality properly, the logic must flow continually. And, and then you can feel properly within that, but you can't feel something that is logically contradictory or incoherent. You're asking us to believe in a square circle, the married bachelor, uh, or the four-pointed triangle. It just doesn't right work <laughs> doesn't work that's right and you know uh re- just recently we were talking about this that, that there are many skeptics out there who want to and this doesn't really have anything directly to do with this except you just made me think about it and um you know there are many skeptics out there um who would look at something like this and and they would say you know uh what she's experienced is what really matters and uh, this stuff about whether there's a god or not uh what i would ask rebecca is i would say look if, if you believe this sort of thing, what if someone said to you that they, di- that they didn't believe in God, that they didn't believe, uh, but, and then another person said, well, I do believe in God. And then a third person said, I believe in God and I do not believe in God at the same time. Well, the reason that you would say, I hope you would say, that doesn't seem to make a lot of, that doesn't feel right to me. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, that's because uh, that is a law of non-contradictions being violated there and you affirm the law of non-contradiction. That's why we can't say that your article is both right and wrong in the same sense at the same time. Correct. So uh, let's get into this the way many Christians think it is, and let's see if this is the way I think it is, and you think it is. Maybe it will be. There is a movement among many Christians today. It is being done with good intentions, I believe, but it is missing the whole picture and sadly will cause harm. Um, this movement is attempting to solve the situation of scores of individuals who are questioning or leaving their faith by focusing on increased theology and apologetics. Let me get right to the point. Apologetics is not the answer to the faith deconstruction or progressive Christianity problem, in quotes, or any other problem for that matter. Um, now, before we go on to what she's saying, uh, what, what I take her to be arguing throughout this is there needs to be care, compassion, understanding, sympathy, uh, an attempt to fix the problems that have to do with abuse in the church. And we're going to see that. I'm not putting words on her lips. Um, but that doesn't mean, this is why we said what she needed to do here was make caveats and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, the baby being apologetics, because here it says, let me get right to the point. Apologetics is not the answer to the faith deconstruction or progressive Christianity problem. Now, Will, I'll let you speak to this because I'm going to say some controversial things right here, but here's here's what I do want to say. Um it is true that the answer to the faith deconstruction is not apologetics alone. The answer will be the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get into all of that. That's good. But God uses means, and God often uses the means of apologetics. He uses it in the Bible. He, we know that God uses means because uh, it, how will they hear without a preacher? Well, to preach means to proclaim the truth, and apologetics is the proclamation of the truth. The apologetics is preaching, and it's Christian preaching if it includes the resurrection of Jesus. So I, I just want to say I agree with her that apologetics is not the be-all, end-all that's going to solve all the problems in the church or the problems with abuse, and I don't really know any working apologist who thinks that. 
Um, there may be some, but I don't know any. What do you have to say, Will? I totally agree. Uh, that's actually one of the things that kept sticking out to me in this as well was when I was reading this, I'm like, but I don't know if any apologist, I don't know if any working apologist, well-known apologist, uh, from anyone from an evidential to a pre-sup that would say that apologetics is the end-all be-all. I will say apologetics is a strong uh, pillar, but it's not the end-all be-all. Uh, as far as, and when we talk about abuse and everything, I know for me, apologetics was what helped me stay anchored in my faith when experiencing abuse. Whoa, yeah. This yeah, article exactly. says that for people like you, apologetics is not the answer. Exactly. So let me explain a little bit. So when I was abused and I, I was raised in a home that was very abusive um, in various different ways, uh, I oftentimes tell people by 10 years old, I experienced every form of abuse uh, that, could, that was imaginable. And so I experienced all that. And when I was a teenager, I did the typical angsty teenager thing. And of course, I was in the early 2000s. So I was like a My Chemical Romance guy, man, through and through. Uh, you know, teenagers scared. Never mind. Okay. So, see, if you'd had a healthy church experience, you would have gotten into U2 like me and it would have all been fine. See, exactly. <laughs> So, but I remember when I was so angry and I was like, you know what, maybe this whole Christian thing is nonsense uh, because Christians hurt me, my family hurt me, my, these friends have hurt me. Uh, then, but there was a few things I couldn't get around. For one, what did I even have to complain about if there was no God? If God was not true, I have nothing to complain about. We are just, I mean, I, I bred Huskies and I've seen my male act pretty aggressive I've even seen him, uh, you might say, sexually assault another puppy mm. because he's just a dog. And no one, of course, I'm giving a moral implication there, but no he's one actually toxic, believes. toxic yeah. canine, toxic masculinity, masculinity in yeah. Dante, my dog. <laughs> and uh, all I was thinking was, and what I remember going back there, going, if there is no God, then by what do I even have moral outrage? Uh, these are just animals interacting with animals and I just happen to be on the bottom of the evolutionary totem pole where I'm getting beat down. Uh, there was quite a few other things I couldn't get around because of a, an apologetical argument every time I, or the purposefulness, like, okay, if there's no God that I'm just a space accident, so who cares? Uh, these are things that kept me anchored. So when I hear people say apologetics isn't important, I even had somebody say that once in the, uh, at the church I'm at and I teach an apologetics course on Sunday mornings, I was outright, I have to stop myself from being like, excuse me, and just being all, and just start getting aggressive there and being argumentative, if you will. Uh, <laughs> but, but you could have just said, Will, you could have just said, you think that giving a defense is is bad thing to do, right? Yep. What's your defense of that claim? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. It doesn't, it's nonsensical. I've actually, we, uh, there's one girl who was a agnostic that went to our church child of, uh, someone. And I did a whole seminar in the historicity of the new Testament and the case for the resurrection. And it was through that she got over her objections to Christianity and accepted Christ. So when Amen. people tell me apologetics doesn't matter, I get very frustrated because I've you don't seen know what you're it. talking about really is the you, thing. Exactly. I, not to be unkind. And, and actually it's not so much that you don't know what you're talking about. That is true. But it's that people leave the church for different reasons. The, the, the statement that is made throughout this article, or at least the strong implication, and I'll bet it's said more frankly than I'm going to say it here, but the implication is the reason people are leaving the church um, is because of abuse that's not being dealt with. Okay, that's true. That is the reason 
people are leaving the church. It's not the reason all people are leaving the church. There are other reasons. And in fact, uh, you'll recall last year, Will, I did a 20 questions for atheists. I did it again this year. But last year, um, I asked this question, how much was it really about the evidence? And most of the atheists that responded, which are people who were, in this case, people who were Christians, who deconstructed, they went through this whole thing that she's talking about and ended up on the outside as an unbeliever, they will tell you there may have been other things that prompted it or served as a catalyst. Um, but it, but the real problem, the reason we walked away was because there wasn't good reason to believe or theologically it made God out to be evil or it didn't make sense or whatever else, which means that even... And so not, not to comment on the whole article before we get done with it, but just to say that um, whenever... Uh, whenever someone is dealing with some underlying issue that's not about the evidence, but they're throwing at you that it is about the evidence, which happens very often, sometimes, this is part of what it means to be an apologist, realize what's going to be the most effective approach right now. Is the most effective approach just going to be for me to proclaim the gospel and answer questions from that perspective? Is the best thing for me to give them an apologetic argument? Which kind? Do they already believe in God? Is it just the resurrection? Do they already like Jesus? And if they could just believe in God, they believe in Jesus? What sort of thing is going on here? There's all kinds of things uh, that, that need to be brought in, but sometimes what needs to be done is to knock down the evidential reasons they give for not believing so that we can get to the underlying reasons and provide that love, compassion, or whatever else is necessary. What do you exactly. think? Exactly. No, that's that's exactly what I was thinking too. Well, it comes down to that whole okay. So depending where you're at, also I, I have to shift my approach. I don't really know what's going on there. Uh, again, do you believe in God? Does Christianity is the question? Okay. In fact, Sunday morning I even had uh, uh, someone in my church, a teenager. She goes, okay, great. You just made the t- uh, teleological argument from design. How do you know it's Christianity then? So it's like, okay, so you don't have a problem with the objection of God. You have, okay, how can you claim Christianity? Right. And then I have to answer that. That's an apologetic. Is that bad? Is it suddenly now bad and that's not helping her faith? Because like you said, the the overall thing, and we're about ready to jump into a little part here that I think is important for us to talk about. It's not just about abuse because certain churches don't even have abuse in them. Some churches are doing great, but they just need to know how to intellectually respond. Other places, yeah, they have there's abuse issues, okay, uh, and w- that should be talked about and addressed and exposed. I agree with that. Absolutely, yeah. But also, it all depends. There's a lot of different interlocutors, and we can't sit there and just broad brush an entire group of people and say, nope, or an entire discipline, which is what apologetics is, because of one fa- area, other area of failing. Yeah, and she throws in theology and apologetics, like like as if what we're doing. And there, there's something real to this. You know, there is a well-known apologist who has a daughter who has become an atheist. And we don't know the truth about what happened behind closed doors, but we know that what she says was that she felt that in her upbringing she got all this information, 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 and not love, love, love. Now, I can't speak to that. I'd really like to hear what that apologist has to say about that because I bet it's not entirely— you know, there's always two sides to everything. Um, but we want to do both of those things. We want to love and we want to provide the reasons because I was thinking about this just before we went live. It's like if it's like this person has come up and she's going to give us an analogy. So let's give her an analogy first. It's kind of like we've got a person here, um, who has low vitamin D. They have vitamin D deficiency, which is a horrible situation. My wife had it. Uh, for a while. It took about a year to get her levels back where they need to be. Let's say someone had, and I don't even know if this is what this does, but let's say you had low vitamin C too. 
And so what we're doing is we're the doctors and we're giving them vitamin C, vitamin C, vitamin C, and they are vitamin C deficient. But then when, uh, when another doctor says, Hey, um, you need to stop with all this vitamin C and you need to give them the vitamin D that they need. And the response is, well, okay, I see that I have not been properly giving the vitamin D, which is a big problem, but they're also vitamin C deficient. Why do I need to stop giving them vitamin C? Why can't we do both at the same time? And that's really what we're saying to this article or what I'm saying right. in response to this article. I completely, yeah, that, exactly. It's, it's not a either or, it's a both and. Yeah. Uh, theology is important, sure. Uh, apologetics is important, sure. And of course, exposing abuse is important, sure. These are all important. So let's not throw one out for the other. And while, and before we jump back into it, I am currently wearing a uh, Dr. Phil Fox t-shirt. He has a podcast and YouTube channel. Uh, you definitely should subscribe to The Church Split. Go subscribe to Mr. Phil Fox. And just to let you know, there is a P.O. box in the description. I'm not asking you for free stuff. I'm just informing you that if you send me a t-shirt for your YouTube channel, ministry, or podcast, I will wear it on Trinity Radio, provided it doesn't have anything blasphemous or profane on it. Boom. I'll do that. <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't talking you, to you. I was talking to the proverbial oh no, you. I'm going to do it. I'll send you my spicy one. I'll send you Molinism like Calvinism, but for intellectuals. Or <laughs> Yeah, I'd wear that. I'd wear that. Or, or, or uh, what is it? Darwinism leads to racism. I'll just send you my spicy ones and you can take the hate. <laughs> I'll do it, man. I'll do it. All right. So uh, she gives this example as a blunt yet quite valid illustration. She says, if I learn more about my rapist, his history with childhood trauma, the abuses he suffered, his successful life since the attack. Oh, and I meet his mother and learn that he really is a good boy. This will help me recover from being violated, disrespected, dehumanized and abused. If I know more about the person who hurt me, this will solve my predicament. Do you now see how this becomes problematic for victims of spiritual abuse, she continues, and religious trauma, who may also have suffered physical, psychological, and sexual abuse at the hands of family members, organizations, or church leadership? They are being told that the very thing that hurt them is what will help fix them. Now, as a person who has experienced abuse, take it away, Will. Oh, my word. This part, actually, I'm not going to lie. I don't have a lot of emotional reactions when I read things. Normally, I just kind of read and take it in. This part actually got me a little little, little heated. So because there's a complete false comparison here. So there's she's making this comparison that this rapist, if you find out more about the rapist, that suddenly you'll be okay more with the rapist. Because, and, but that's not true. So over here, when you come over here and talk about God and apologetics, don't you see it's the same thing for people who've been spiritually abused? You are comparing the rapist to though, God. To God. <laughs> That's the problem here. Uh, I'm not saying that it. the people who abused you, let me ask you, who abused you? Was it God or was it the church or people within it? If it's the people within it, then it's not God. So you're not making a proper comparison. So, of course, I tell people all the time who have experienced abuse, okay, let me give you a clearer picture of God because what you've been taught is God is not God. These people were lying to you or manipulating you or misrepresenting God. Please let me show you the true God. And that is totally different than sitting there saying that me telling you to tell you more about your rapist. God didn't rape you, okay? God didn't abuse you. The church may have abused you. People within the church may have abused you. But to that is such a false dichotomy. I can, in fact, when I experienced a lot of spiritual abuse and I went through all the things I went through, uh, in my early 20s, uh, right before I jumped into ministry, I kind of went through a deconstruction phase. I went through, okay, 
what is even real? Because I was raised as a hardcore, independent, fundamental Baptist, King James onlyist, blah, blah, blah. I started by, I started going piece by piece of everything I was taught and breaking it down. And then what I started realizing was what I was taught was God, was not God. And then I started realizing, and I had to stop myself even from feeling resentment that I was lied to by so many people. And I just had to come to the conclusion that these people were deceived by other people who were deceived by, who were deceived by other people. So it's not the same thing. These, these are complete category errors. And as I leaned into God and found out more what God thought, I actually started feeling more bad for people who were stuck into the lie of who God was. So again, does that, that's am I powerful. making sense here? Yeah, am that's powerful. Clear? That's powerful. Because, and, and, and if maybe the person, maybe the person who hurt you, whoever you are out there was very argumentative, was very defensive, um, was the person that liked to shove facts and stuff like that down your throat. Okay, but that doesn't mean that's the way Christianity is in general. It's not the way pastors are in general. It's not the way church people are in general. It's not even the way men are in general if it was a man. Um, right. And it's certainly not how God is. So, but then, but I can totally see, Will, to try to sympathize a little bit with the article, I can see how someone sees certain traits in an individual who abused them and, and then thought those aspects of Christianity that are in any way um, aggressive, uh, not politically correct, these kind of things saying, well, then I can't accept that anymore, but I'm sorry. Uh, that's not how we function in reality with anything else. I'm sure that you think the cancer is a horrific thing, but yet we don't say, well, cancer is not real because it's just so awful that it's real. No, it's real. Whether you like it or not now, not, and, and I, and, and listen, the, the, the cancer, the real cancer is abuse in the church. I agree oh. with you on that. And false teaching is, is also a cancer in the church. True. But, but there are going to be true things that are taught in the Bible that you don't like, that aren't appealing to your senses. I'll even say some things that I wish weren't the way they are, but you know what? I'm just some guy in Southwest Indiana talking to some guy in Michigan. And the reality is God's God. And there are some things that are true about reality, whether you like them or not. Right. That's just the facts. And that's why for me, uh, again, when I read that, I'm like, I get it because I it's tempting, man. It's tempting when you're in that situation. It's so tempting to, to look at all of it and go, you're all a bunch of liars and the whole thing's a sham or to go or equate God with it. But it's not. And so I it, this literally that when I read that and I was just thinking, I'm like, that's so intellectually dishonest. And it's actually a very poor representation of abuse victims. Uh, I got a lot of heat recently. A lot of heat recently because I talked about Eric Skorzynski at Preacher Boys resigning the faith. And I talked about how it's so important that abuse victims need to stop because there's also a truth here as well. I don't want to get you in trouble here. I don't. But there's a truth here as well that if you understand more of your abuser or why these things happen, that it can actually help make sense of your reality a little bit. Because I look in, if I was raised in the foster system or engaged there, and the more I realize that when kids abuse and other people abuse, usually there is a long history of abuse as well. Uh, abuse hurt people, hurt people, right? But uh, healed people, heal people. And yeah. then also this other idea of just, guys, it is important to move on to a degree. You have to move on from it. Because if you don't, then you stay victim status. And I don't think we should stay in victim status. We need to become victor status. Uh, and if you don't do that, then you're just, the abuse wins. And I just don't believe in that. So sorry, that's a tangent that I wanted no, to go awesome. on there. Don't apologize for your <laughs> tangents. You have beautifully put tangents. Oh. All right, here we go. <laughs> for centuries, Christianity has covered up or been party to wrongdoings. 
That's true. This is well-documented across denominations and covers a vast range of abuses. She lists them rape slash incest, domestic violence, narcissistic leadership. Now, okay. Um, cult leadership and organizations, child sex and physical abuse, embezzlement, murder, infidelity, kidnapping, and more. Yes, Christians have done every possible sin, uh, or people professing Christ have done every imaginable sin. That's true. People that don't profess Christ, people who've, uh, who are atheists have too. Progressive Christians commit sins. Everyone's a sinner. Every organization that has lasted for more than a decade has probably done some bad things. Right. But it's just that that also kills me, too, where I'm like, OK, so where does the bucks where does the puck stop then? It's just going to keep going because there's so everyone's messed up. Every every organization has somebody who's committed a moral sin. Doesn't mean that it's all bad. Uh, I say this all the time just because even an atheist like Stalin did horrible things does not mean that all atheists are Stalin. You know, and vice versa, just because Christians have raped and done terrible things and the Crusades were awful and blah, 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 does not mean all Christians are guilty of that. So, again, this whole broad brush lumping has always been a thing that doesn't sit right with me. But. Well, and it comes back to something you did say in a previous episode. I think the one where you were responding to the preacher boy guy, um, preacher boys guy. And that is that um, that. Um, well, I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say about that? Probably if you oh, focus, you focus, on, you focus on, you focus on the misses and not the hits basically. Right. You right. Fo- if you're a guy or a, or a, per- or a woman in this case, who has a ministry that is largely focused on people that have experienced abuse in the church and trying to sniff those out, what are you going to primarily be immersed in abuse cases, abuse stories? Um, and, and I mean, I have to remind myself that because I, I'm listening to atheists so much and atheists on Twitter and atheists who I privately chat with and all that. I have to remind myself that the normal atheist on the street, not normal in in the sense that's controversial, but just the average atheist on the street doesn't talk like that or think that way or have those presuppositions. And, and in the same way, people that get in this sphere can think about the, this list that I just gave rape, cult leaders, embezzlement, murder, infidel, and, and think, okay, well, um, that's what I'm seeing every time I'll open my eyes. Well, yeah, you've decorated your, your desktop with the things you're working on, which are good. It's good that you're working on abuse, but you're seeing that. So now you're thinking that's what's there more than it is. Exactly. Not that it isn't and, there, not that it isn't there. And in fact, sorry, Will, I just, I, no, I know where people are going to clip me out. And so this list that is, that is listed here, we definitely want to see those things come to an end. And in the denomination that I'm most closely aligned with, uh, I don't go to a Southern Baptist church now, but I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist in, in the sense that I've been in the church so long. And I can tell you right now, the Southern Baptist church, we are as individual people who go to the national convention, trying to get people there that are that are not being the most helpful in this regard to be helpful. So we are with you on ending all of these things, not on ending apologetics and theology. Exactly. In fact, proper apologetics and theology applied can help mitigate these things. Yeah. Uh, if you want, like just the moral argument alone for God's existence can help align you. Right. Like I said, I was Mr. Angsty teenager who was a hateful, angry. I was even violent. Um, it was through that that changed me because I realized that my behavior was not aligning with the ontological reality of the universe that God created. So it helped apologetics actually helped me mitigate my toxic behavior. 
Amen. So, it's just, and, I, I can't yeah. handle this. And, and, literally, and, and, go ahead. I've just, I was just going to crack the joke. I've literally lost all ability to even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So the, the thing is, um, God can change people and he can do it in ways that aren't your favorite ways, but that doesn't mean that he can't do it. Right. Um, but we're against these things. We're just not against uh, teaching Christianity in a specific way. All right. While the heart of fundamentalism has its roots in the Niagara Convention more than 100 years ago and includes names of foundational men, we were all taught to respect, such as missionary James Hudson Taylor and reference Bible author C.I. Schofield. Uh, what I refer to in this piece is modern fundamentalism. Modern fundamentalism has, like most things do, changed significantly since the inception of the term fundamentalist. Christian evangelical fundamentalism, as we know it today, has only been around for about three generations. Those who started it, those who joined it, those who were raised inside of it. And that's you and me. The generation raised inside of modern Christian evangelical fundamentalism are the ones standing up and saying enough is enough. This generation is saying no more abuse, no more hypocrisy, no more shame and manipulation, no more man-made gospel and rule following. To learn a, a more about the beginnings of fundamentalism and the effects of growing up in the world, read her post here. Now, uh, you say what you want, but let me let me take lead on this one. So when I'm looking at this, okay, she's divided up modern evangelicalism into these three categories of those who started it, like Billy Graham and Jack Hiles, two very different men, by the way. I was going to say, those are so <laughs> different. It's, when I saw those two got lumped, I, I just shook my head. That's unbelievable. Right. Those who joined it, our pastors and our parents, and those who were raised in it, you and me. Um, the thing is, I want to go through this list of what my generation, because I was raised in it. I'm the son of a megachurch pastor, grew up in a megachurch, never felt like uh, the church did me wrong, never felt like mm, I was supposed to be some uber good, better than possible kid because my dad's the pastor. My parents didn't even name me and my brother biblical names. Braxton and Chad are not found in the Bible. And um, that was partly because they, they'd they seen all these pastors whose names, whose kids were Joseph, Mary, and all this, that they were like, no, we don't want them to even have that pressure. And so, um, so I, I didn't have any of this, but I'm supposed to come out of this generation. And let me see if I, what I'm supposed to be saying enough to, um, is standing up and saying enough is enough. This generation is uh, no more abuse. Okay. Yes. No more abuse. I'm saying enough is enough. Let's end abuse. No more hypocrisy. Amen to that. Problem is I'm prone to being a hypocrite myself and so is everyone else. Exactly. <laughs> no more shame <laughs> and manipulation. Okay. No more manipulation. That's true. But I'm telling you there is right now in the time we're living such an emphasis on making sure no one ever feels ashamed of anything and there are just like pain is a good thing for you. Obviously, you can have chronic pain and we have to regulate that with medications and things. But shame, just like pain, actually, when functioning properly in your life, serves a good function. And that is to turn you around and get you to not do shameful things anymore. Now, I mean, should I'll, her, the rapist yeah, she talked about earlier, should he feel shame? Who? The rapist she talked about earlier. Right. Absolutely. Uh, no more shame, though. Remember, no more shame. Right. But of course we want shame there. We want that person to be ashamed who abuses. Uh, and, and again, this is one of those things that turns around. I think sh this person, Rebecca, would probably feel that way and resonate with that. So what we're seeing here, the difference is just who's the target, not so much whether we should feel 
shame. I, I'm glad for the shame. Now, here's the thing that that I experienced, the shame I experienced. I guess I should finish that sentence. I'm glad for the shame I experienced because mm-hmm. oftentimes it's because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life that works as a reformer to change who I am. And and uh, But um, shame is not inherently a bad thing. Now, it th- when people say in the IFB uh, groups or whatever, make people feel ashamed of things that they shouldn't feel ashamed of, like a woman wearing pants. Okay. That, that sort of thing is where your upbringing can wire you in such a way that you're not always sure is what I'm experiencing the Holy spirit or is what I'm experiencing the way I was wrongly wired by some right. particular church. And I feel like you probably have something to say about that. Any thoughts on that? I mean, you pretty much just kind of took exactly what I would say. It's shame. Yeah. Cause some of these groups, they, they shame everything. You know, you went to a movie theater sh- for shame uh, and uh, you, know, you do anything shame on you. So what, ha- what is happening now is a knee jerk reaction to those groups going, well, all shame is bad. Shaming people is bad. No, Shaming people over not shameful acts is bad, but shaming people over shameful acts is good. Uh, I should be shamed when I say or do or act in a way that is bad, right? So, and I should rightfully apologize, which I have. Uh, I I recently was told uh, because of my comments about abuse victims need to learn how to move on. Now that could take years, I can take counseling, whatever it takes, but you have to move on. You need to find a way, otherwise it'll destroy you. Uh, I was told that I was insensitive for saying such a for such a thing. I said it far more crass and far more uh, uh, of a ranting style than that. But that Pritchett was style. the hard. I said it Pritchett style. I bust. Yeah. I I reached in and found my inner Pritchett prime and I yeah. let him soar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but I was told after that that you know uh, you know oh you should be ashamed of that and you never apologize when you will like you just refuse to. You can't say you're one percent wrong. I can, it's just, I'm not going to apologize for something that's not something to apologize for, but we should feel shame on things that we should. So again, uh, I know we're going on a tangent about that one part, but it's just, that's why caveats in this article would have been really helpful. <laughs> yeah. And this is going to sound, um, self-serving because I'm not really including myself, but I don't mean it that way. What have I been most interested in? This is where I resonate with the article. This is what I can say. What have I been most interested in my Christian life? Well, a lot of things. Obviously, there's the theology and apologetics, but my own personal clean living should be a goal. I don't always succeed at it, but that that should be a goal. So it's true that in my interests throughout my Christian life, in addition to discipleship and learning theology and apologetics and serving as a minister, I'll admit that I have not thought as much about and therefore not been as concerned about abuse in the church. And that's partly because I've not personally encountered it, but that's part of the problem. I, I know of, I know of, it's because it's now public, particular ministers who have tried to cover up abuses in the church. And I'm ashamed on behalf of the church for those bad faith actors. I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed when that happens. Not ashamed of Jesus, though. Ashamed of the modern, uh, particular modern congregations or individuals, right? And I should have thought about it more and called it out when I had when I had a public platform as a um, pastor. But I'm calling it out now, right alongside Rebecca. I think it's horrible. I, I'm against it. And I'm not just saying that in lip service. Okay. All right. Let's um, let's see. What if, what am I missing here? Okay. It's not what you've been told. Calling out the church doesn't get you lots of five star ratings from Christians. It gets you a lot of it. Att- again, 
Christians are not monolithic, and it gets you a lot of attention from progressive Christians and people like that, right. or even from secularists. Any, any thoughts you want to say before we oh, go on? I mean, as a guy who's gone after progressive Christianity a lot, uh, I could definitely agree with that. But also, yeah, actually going after the church does give you a lot of five-star ratings for Christians anymore. It's the it's the new favorite thing for people. Like, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to call out Christians because the progressives and all that shame Christians so much. Eh, oddly enough, they shame Christians. And they attack the church so much that the church will turn on it itself and start attacking the church. And actually, that's how a lot of – there's a lot of Christians platforms that exist because that's all they really do. So I don't know. I actually kind of disagree with that because I'm like, actually, as a guy who's part of the church split, who literally calls out divisive issues in the church all the time and how it shouldn't be. You're doing um, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I do call this out and it's like, no, I got quite a few five-star ratings for it. And it's not because I'm great. I'm just saying that uh, it, it does. You get good attention from it. And of course the progressives, but if you're hard on the church, the progressives and the eighth and a lot of atheist community, not all of the atheist community, but a lot of them will eat it up. Um, yeah. So it's just, yeah. it, it just depends what you do. No matter what you do, someone's going to love it or hate it. It's just, it is what it is. There's an audience for everything. Exactly. But if she says, but if you look outside of simply simple binary thought patterns and walk away from your social media or church echo chambers for just a little while, you will see a spiritual awakening spreading that cannot be ignored or told what to do. You can't tell the spiritual awakening what to do. And while those within the traditional church believe the cause of this falling away is social and racial that that's not why i think there's a fall i think that's part of, actually i think the, the lgbt thing is probably one of the biggest reasons right right uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> lifestyle choices and the individual's own sinful heart they have missed the mark no they haven't those are all reasons people walk away from the church Abuse is also one, but it's again, you're trying to tell me not to give the patient any more vitamin C. I don't even know what vitamin C deficiency would do or if it's a thing, but, but you're telling me not to give people vitamin C because they're also vitamin D deficient, but they're deficient all the way around. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it kills me. It hurts my heart. <laughs> the cause of people walking away from Christianity or church tradition is simple. Abuse. Physical abuse, psychological, emotional, spiritual, sexual, abuse of power, abuse of scripture. Yeah, that's a reason. We're just repeating but that's not the only reason. That's not the reason, though. Like most I've heard a lot of people actually as someone who engages with people who resign the faith regularly, a lot of it deals with hypocrisy or uh, intellectual problems. A lot of it's intellectual problems because or like that teenager asked, well, uh, I get asked this at school all the time, you know, it. There's a lot of reasons. Or some people, it could just be they don't feel a certain way there or they don't like being told that they need to align themselves with biblical morality and things like that. So a lot of people – and there has been polls that show this. A lot of people aren't Christians primarily due to emotional reasons. There's just – abuses can be one of those, but mm -hmm. it is not the reason why most people are leaving the faith. But again, this is like – because that, if that's all she focuses on or that's what you go for and that's all your little crosshairs are on, that's what you're going to see. It's like me complaining that the church is too divided when all I do is focus on church dividing issues. Right. It doesn't make sense. But anyway. Yeah, and uh, so she says here, something I've found to ring true in my own life after years spent absorbing worldview and apologetic thought. Why does my faith need defending? What did it do wrong? 
isn't my faith supposed to defend me? You want to take the lead on that one? Yeah, this was kind of one of those, uh, this isn't an either or, it's a both and. Your faith, of course, defends you, but of course you must defend your faith. This is a biblical 1 Peter 3.15, Acts 17, I could go on. There's a lot of parts of scripture where your faith is defending. In fact, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, what does he do? He uses scripture to defend himself and protect himself, but also to protect his faith. So again, it, yes, my, my thoughts on there is not an either or, it's a both and. Your faith defends you, but you need to defend the faith. It's a discipline that Christians need to learn. Yeah, and I was going to pull this up. I don't know if I'll be able to pull up the PowerPoint fast enough to get it, but um, I should say that one of the interesting things that we find in the Bible is we find the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts persuading. And we know he would have persuaded Jews in the synagogues differently than he would persuade the Greeks in, say, Acts 17, as we've already mentioned. But here's the thing. He goes on. To uh, to persuade, it talks about him providing, you know, persuasion is a form of apologetics. You're giving reasons why someone should think a particular thing is true. It's very much the sort of thing that's in view in this article. And not only does Paul do it there, but Paul uses apologetics before, during, and after the events of Acts 17. In Acts 14, 17, 18, 4, 19, 8, 28, 23 through 24, Paul continues to persuade as if he thinks one of the ways that God's going to draw these people or one of the reasons they're not accepting is because they need more theology and apologetics. You can take it up with Paul if you like. Now, on the other hand, I don't think it's true that that we should not also be loving and sympathetic and grieve with those who are grieving and mourn with those who mourn and all that stuff. Uh, but again, all right, let's move on. Did you, was there anything else on that? that you nope, You're good. Let's go. <laughs> Don't do this. She says there are tactics being used to keep or bring back into the fold. Those who have walked away or are doubting, which can be very, very dangerous. Add to the us versus them mentality and create a further divide. And these are some of the things that us trying to bring people back to the Christian faith so that they don't die and go to hell. Uh, this is some of what we're doing. Fear-mongering, probably for reasons I just mentioned. Coercion, authoritarian control, verbal and emotional abuse, shaming, rejection, or shunning manipulation, passive aggression, aggression undue influence, mocking, or minimizing. Um, now, this is actually a different issue, but I do want to say this. I've presented you here on this stream with a guy who experienced abuse, and is telling you his experience of it and how God used apologetics and theology to bring him back. Um, you can go. There's a whole playlist on this channel, you, on, on our channel at uh, Trinity Radio, youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. Go to the playlist, 20 questions for atheists. I think it's maybe question two or three. And you can actually listen to multiple atheists answering this very question. I don't see any citations here to other atheists. Maybe I'm missing them. There might be some. I don't know. I'm not being passive aggressive. I really don't know if you maybe have something like that, but I don't see it here, but I provide them for you. I provided you a living, breathing, abused Christian in your midst. And then we've got the playlist. So check it out. What are they saying? They're saying they want theology and apologetics. Do I think that's all they need? No, I do not. Do they also need love? Yes, they need love. But that's all we keep saying throughout this whole thing is that it's not an either or, it's a both and. Exactly. And also I the, the lists are buzzwords. And I, uh, me and Brian talk about this all the time on our podcast. We absolutely cannot stand the buzzword obsession, uh, fear mongering, coercion, authoritative control. Uh, 
These things are buzzwords and they're very broad in scope and definition and that people will throw them. I mean, I can't tell you many times I've been like, well, morally, blah, blah, blah. Then like, oh, well, what you're doing is that you're shaming somebody or you're trying to do authoritative manipulation on them. I'm like, okay, no, I'm trying to reason with you. And now you're trying to flip the script on me as soon as I make a case. So we have to be, again, the buzzword stuff is, it's very vague. And it seems to be applied at people's wish and command, however they want to twist and manipulate it, uh, just to make themselves feel more comfortable. But anyway, I digress. I see none of these things in this list happening at my local church. I agree that they have happened at churches and are still happening at some churches. When we think about the types of characters that sometimes exist in us, and this does happen in like the IFB churches too, not that they're all that way, but right. again, this real... Um, now, you better listen to me. You go down that road. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You know, there's something like that that is a very assumed authority or faux authority that uh, that we do need to push back against. There is manipulation. Uh, there is shaming over things. These things are true, but you're right. The buzzwords here, again, shaming is one of those that's really big right now. Uh, anyway, let's move on because we, we could talk all day and spend five hours on this. Right. Um, these forms of unhealthy behavior can be seen by giving a book casually to someone with an indirect, insincere comment. I thought you might like this book. Entering into a heated discussion or debate. You don't have to enter into a heated discussion or debate. You can have a casual discussion or debate. Exactly. Not giving up until you prove your point. Disowning slash not speaking with a loved one because they no longer believe the way you do. Uh, well, now... This is an interesting one, and I, I hate to sidetrack us again, but what if I, what if someone said to you, what, what if someone said to a person who is very proactive in their speaking out in favor of certain social issues like abortion or LGBT stuff, and they really want to talk about that because that for them at this moment, that may be the most important uh, issue that they're dealing with and they're talking about. You would think it was it was uh, unacceptable, I would think for a family member to say, well, I'll be your family member, but I don't want us to talk about those issues. That would be wrong. Right. But yet yeah. Christianity is the, is part of the identity of the persons uh, that, that, that are presenting the gospel. Yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> um, but then she goes on to say here, assuring your personal testimony of, I question some things about the Bible and God wants, but I still believe so you can too. How is that wrong to say? <laughs> if anything, that's that's assured. Like, oh man, I'm having a lot of doubts. Hey man, I I've been there, I've done that, I get it. I still believe you can too. Let me explain to you what got me there, and yeah. your way there might be a little bit different. How is that bad? How is that shameful? That's encouragement. Yeah. That's empathy. <laughs> right. If you came to me and you said, um, Braxton, here's what I'm going to do with a new car. I'm going to buy a car today. Here's what I'm going to use it for. And you say, I think that the best choice is to get uh, a Miata. Okay. And you're telling me you're going to cart around like five kids. And um, my reaction might be, well, um, why don't you consider a Chrysler Pacifica? It's a fantastic um, minivan. And here's why I think you would benefit more from that. What's wrong with that? Nobody gets upset about that. But somehow when we're talking about faith, here's why you should not buy the Chrysler Pacifica, but why you should remain in the faith or come back to the faith. Why am I doing something immoral, wrong, unhelpful, abusive by doing that, <laughs> by, by telling you why I think this is true? 
Your guess is as good as mine there, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> now, this next part is why I think someone mentioned that they thought there was some Calvinism in this person's background or in most of the churches they were familiar with. Why not apologetics? A quick Google search will show you that most individuals claiming to be an apologist or have a love of apologetics today are evangelical and fundamental Christian. Well, I'm an evangelical. Teachings on the Holy Spirit and... <coughs> <coughs> free will are basically non-existent within most of those environments. When you use apologetics to woo a soul back into Christianity, you are forgetting those two essential elements. Let me tell you, you know, this is true. Will literally every Christian on the planet who is not a Calvinist and therefore every apologist who's not a Calvinist believes in free will. Calvinists even believe in compatibilism. They'll say free will. We believe in like libertarian free will. <laughs> I, I was when I read this, I was like, "Wait, what do you mean we minimize free will?" There is, I have had countless apologists on my channel using the free will defense of the faith. I emphasize free will in my ministry all the time. I just, and then the Holy Spirit. We of course emphasize the Holy Spirit. We were just right. talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. What twenty minutes ago? Right. I don't know what I don't know what I can't speak to her experience here because obviously I don't but I can't help but feel when you're saying escape your echo chamber that you'd never escaped your echo chamber because uh, every William Lane Craig, uh, Dr. Braxton Hunter, that weirdo, uh, you know, Dr. Pritchett, Dr. Layton Flowers. There's all these. Uh, Did you say uh, Tim Stratton? Tim's, uh, yeah, I was about to say Dr. Tim Stratton, who literally free does the free thinking, thinking ministries. With the free thinking argument is a thing he does. It's uh, in your uh, debate with Matt Dillahunty, you used the free will defense. In your and Dan Barker statements. on Unbelievable, we only talked about free will. <laughs> in fact, you could almost say that Christians are almost obsessed with free will because that's what's always fighting is Calvinism versus everybody else on on free will. Uh, and I don't know what you're even even about. the you know even though you and I would have issues with. Calvinist speech about free will. The reality is even Calvinists, w many of them will, will talk about having free will, even though they're talking about compatibilism instead of libertarianism. For example, Tyler Vela has the freed thinker and he's a Calvinist. So, right. Yeah. So, all right. And the Holy spirit. Yeah. Did you take my class? Did you take any of my classes at Trinity yet? Uh, I've only had you in one class. It was probably apologetics one, wasn't it? Uh, actually, no, I don't remember what it was, but I remember I had you. I've had Pritchett Such more than anyone. Such an impression I've made. But Apologetics 1, <laughs> Contemporary Apologetics 1, one of the first things that I— well, first of all, we give a biblical explanation of why apologetics is acceptable. But we say what I said at the beginning of this stream, or the beginning of this recording, which was, look, God uses means, and he uses the means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he uses the means of apologetics, and the Holy Spirit works through that to convict a man's soul. What were you gonna I say? remember what class it was. <laughs> it was the one of like the uh, of Christian theology in general, where we used the book across the spectrum. That's the one. Oh yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Okay, I got yeah. you. But we love the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? We're <laughs> Trinitarians. This is Trinity Radio. <laughs> uh, right. So funny. The Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove when he was baptized. Well, now she's giving me all this doctrine now. The day of Pentecost is creatively explained away, and the Holy Spirit is the third part of the Trinity. That about some... Oh, oh, she's saying that is what she was... Well, good, that's... Let's see. It's creatively explained away, and the Holy Spirit is the third... But you understand when we say the third part of the Trinity, 
we teach that the Godhead, that the we're talking about the Godhead, and the only reason we talk about second and third member of the Trinity is to keep them in order when we're having conversations like this. Right. It's not order of importance when people are talking about the Trinity. It's literally just saying the first person of the Trinity is usually the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, mainly because that's the list that Jesus gives, so we just kind of stick with one, two, and three. Not yeah. order of importance, just Jesus listed them. <laughs> yeah. She says, that about sums up the education a fundamental evangelical Christian kid would receive about the Holy Spirit. Could this be a reason why apologetics also forget this point? We don't forget that point. I'm not saying there's not some Jack apologist out there who's who's new to it and it loves William Lane Craig or Frank Turek or somebody and is out there doing apologetics as best he understands it and isn't talking about the gospel or the Holy Spirit drawing on man's heart. But I just don't think a sampling of the majority of Christian apologists that are out there doing work that are most well-known I don't think you'd miss that. I mean, you've got William Lane Craig doing his Sunday school class every week online and goes through all of the systematic theology, including the Holy Spirit. But In fact, uh, he's gotten a lot of heat because he'll talk about how if something gets proved wrong, like if the Kalam gets proved wrong, he's not. it's not that he's not low, no longer going to be a Christian. He gets a lot of heat for that, and he talks about the conviction of the Spirit in his life. That's right. That's I just put that in the video <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> Like he he was recently come under fire about that. I'm just it kills me. Anyway, it, we definitely do not mitigate the Holy Spirit. In fact, almost emphasize it too much in certain circles. So much where they confuse all subjective feelings with the Holy Spirit. But that's a topic for another time. Right? Yeah, that can go the other way too. So she says, Ah, yes, that pesky. Then there's free will. That pesky free will. We were told we have one, but that we were told we have one free will but then taught we could never use it because our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Okay, I don't know where you're at on this, Will Hess, but I'm going to blow everyone's mind who's not a regular listener and tell you that while I believe that we have a sin nature that is because of Adam's sin, we have a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin. We are not personally culpable of Adam's sin. We're personally culpable for our sin when we sin because the Bible elsewhere says that God does not hold a son guilty of his father's sin or his father's guilty of his son's sin. And so as a result, I, I, yeah, I think that because we have a nature and an environment inclined towards sin, I'm, not, I'm going to have a certain level of um, cognitive um, um, depravity. This is what Calvinists call it. I'm, my mind doesn't think as well as Adam's mind probably thought. My, my hands don't grip as well as Adam's hands grip. My hands still do grip, and my brain does still work, and I still can make free will decisions. So I'm sorry yeah. that you encountered a sort of Augustinian understanding of original sin that was more um, robust, I guess. But I think that this is another clue that maybe we're talking about some kind of reformed church background here. Yeah, exactly. Because in Ezekiel 18 says we're not held culpable for our father's sins. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I am not Augustinian in my view of original sin. I believe that we have conflicting desires and that when we become that, you know, uh, says by the days of our youth, our hearts are turned toward evil. I think that's accurate. And uh, again, and just because uh, your heart's deceitful does not mean suddenly I mitigate free will. I'm saying be careful of what you choose because of your heart. Be careful of what you choose, free will, because of your heart. Uh, as uh, um, Cain and Abel, you know, sin is lurking at the door, but you must rule over it. Uh, yeah. That's 
I don't, again, uh, whatever is going on here. And again, I understand certain churches teach this differently. Um, and I definitely see that if this is an extreme Calvinistic or a very hardcore Augustinian view, how that could be a problem. I agree, but that is hardly most or all the church. That's a part of the body of believers. Yeah. And even there, even if, if one is a Calvinist one, and obviously we have our own debates about this, but Whatever we might think, me and Will, is implied by these uh, philosophical positions. Uh, the truth is, the Calvinist still affirms that you have to make choices and that you're responsible for your choices. And so, um, you know, they they would say also that you can choose to do good or bad things. The Calvinist will even say you can make good choices, bad choices. Um, you can even make spiritual choices, provided that they're wrong spiritual choices and you can do you can do everything what does a dead man do the calvinist often asks well it turns out when you look at what calvinists say about this and what the bible teaches calvinists apparently hold the position that a dead man can do everything that a living man can do except the one thing they're commanded to do by god which is to repent and believe the gospel and i don't buy that but even if one was a calvinist they still want to say you can make choices so make the right choice what were you going to say right. will I'm just over here cheering you on about that. I'm like, thank you. That's pretty much what I said. Uh, we're we're told also uh, the contradiction of we're told we're dead in sin, but not dead. But also when we're saved, we're dead to sin. I find there's a uh, uh, not quite a consistent. If you don't, dead means you don't, dead and you can't come back. Wait, are you saying you still sin, Will? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, so apparently if we were to take the Calvinist interpretation and you are dead, 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 and you can't do it, then I shouldn't sin as a believer. Right. Cause now uh, you're dead to sin. Right. Cause I'm dead to sin. But when I was unsaved or unregenerate, I was dead in sin, but I could not bring myself back. I don't understand how dead means alienation. Can we just say that as opposed to inability anyway? Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. My Calvinist brothers and sisters. I have a lot of Calvinist friends, by the way, and I trigger them regularly, but it's okay. Well, you know, when they get the two of us together, we're going to have side quests. And that was a side quest. <laughs> Apologetics leaves no room for the Holy Spirit to reveal truth, she says. Only the truth stated by the apologist will suffice. What? <laughs> Again, I've lost all ability to even. Apologetics absolutely leaves room for the Holy Spirit. We're actually using apologetics, hoping the Holy Spirit will convict and As draw. another influencer on the person. Exactly. Yeah, apologetics leaves no room, she says, for a person to exercise their free will, freedom of choice, to disagree or not believe what the apologist has said. Now, the, the point is, you can believe whatever you want. We believe you can believe whatever, even things you're not capable of doing, you can you can will to do. Well, like we have a real, or at least I do, and I think Will's with me on this, we have a kind of robust understanding of free will where you may not even be able to fly like a bird, but you can still will to fly like a bird. You're, you have free will. The thing is, you can choose to believe the wrong thing. And we think right. telling people to choose to believe the right thing is important. And of course you agree because you're telling people something to believe that you think is the right thing right now. So we're with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, in fact, I say all the time, like this is a decision you'll have to make. I can't make it for you. I can give you reasons. I can reason with you. I can empathize with you. I can pray for you. I can do all those things. But in the end, you have to make a decision. And I am not responsible for that. I'm only responsible to give you the message and it's your responsible responsibility to choose what to do with it. So the two reasons we've been given why not apologetics 
is that you can't, the Holy Spirit's not able to work whenever we're doing apologetics, which is nonsense. And he can't, that he can't use that. And that free will, even though I've used it as an apologetic, uh, apologetics is incompatible with free will. Right. Apologetic. Okay. A study of apologetics is only one way. It is not the way. Apologetics may well support those who are within the faith or religion. Yes, it can. But it is not for those doubting or injured by the very beliefs being touted with such superiority and surety. Well, if the beliefs that are being taught are not true beliefs, then yeah, the, those won't be helpful. But we have to know which are the true beliefs and which are the false beliefs, and that's where apologetics becomes helpful. Nailed it. Your views about God are your views, your denomination's views, your colleagues' views. The God I have met after leaving the fundamentalist evangelical world is so much bigger than any debate or apologetics conference can ever hope to encompass. But you realize, first of all, apologists primarily are going to either defend like perfect being theism, which you just simply can't have a bigger view of God because we're saying it's like or they're just going to go with maximal greatness, maximal omniscience, maximal. You understand that to say we have a bigger view of God than the maximal view doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And every apologist I know that's popular is arguing for a maximally great God. Well, and I'll, honestly, this part reeks of relativism to me. Mm-hmm. That's that's really what it is. Your views about God are your views, your denomination's views. You know, that's true for you, but my truth, it, it just reeks of relativism to me, which, of course, if that's the case, and my my view is just as true as your view, if it's, if it's all subjective, then why even write the article? Well, that's see, now that's the question, because I could defend her a little bit and say, well, hold on, Will. She's saying your views about God and your denomination's views and your colleagues' views, those are your own views, but they're all wrong. And I know my view is right because I found God after leaving the fundamentalist evangelical church. But then uh, I want to hear more about that experience. You know, how did you get such surety? And and here's the thing: you're 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 upset that we're giving that we have such confidence in the surety that we have. Uh, I don't think we have superiority, but surety. Um, where are you? I mean, you seem pretty sure about this issue. Should you not have written this article? This is just to show we've been showing it at points throughout this article, this theme that if you turn it back, it doesn't make any sense or it hits you more squarely. And, and that's right. not to be rude. That's just calling out what we're seeing here. Yeah. It's just, and that's why I said when, uh, when I first read this, I'm like, this is incoherent gobbledygook. It's just, I, and I'm not trying to sound like a curmudgeon here. It's just, it, it doesn't hold up to its own standard. It's self-defeating a lot. So she says, holding leadership in church is accountable isn't a problem. It's right. Amen. Yep. We agree. People distilling so you're their faith. Them. Good job. Yeah. People distilling their faith and throwing away the rotten pieces. That is a spiritual awakening. Uh, okay. A- amen. That can be a part of a spiritual awakening. See, but you can't say, you can't say, look, providing evidence and arguments leaves no room for the Holy Spirit but then argue that throwing away false beliefs results in a spiritual awakening. I thought the Holy Spirit results in a spiritual awakening. So the doing away with false beliefs is, can be part of a spiritual awakening, but in and of itself, even by your standards where the Holy Spirit is the chief actor here, um, you can't say that, in my opinion. Words out of my mouth. Individuals saying this kind of Christianity is wrong and I'm out is not a sign that there's something wrong with the person. There's something wrong with this. So every single person that says this kind of Christianity is wrong about any particular kind of Christianity 
is a sign that that person is right and the church is wrong? I mean, shouldn't we say it's a sign that we should compare and contrast their statements about truth and the church's statements about truth? Exactly. Yeah. Organizations such as the gospel, I'm not going to read this thing about the gospel coalition. It's just talking about she's interacted with them. Uh, but here what? in a podcast, what well, do you want me to read it? I'll read it. We're almost at the end. Oh, Organizations no, 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 such what? as the gospel coalition are scrambling to keep people inside the faith. I'm going to read it. Don't leave. Okay. Here's more proof of traditional Christian views are right. This is evidenced by their new book, Before You Leave, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church and their close connection with Lisa Childers and her story of apologetics, bringing her out of deconstruction. In a Twitter post, TGC editor Ivan Mesa stated, I'm deconstructing. Yet another social media post announces departure from the Christian faith. The cause could be sex, race, politics, justice, science, hell, or all of the above. But deconstruction needs not end in unbelief. We're excited to release this book. Okay, what's wrong with that statement? I don't even agree with everything the Gospel Coalition says. And yeah, I don't know if there's anything. Yeah. What did Elisa Childers do? She's a nice lady. You're about to find out. Get ready. <laughs> oh, boy. Alicia said, "Is it so it really seems to be a movement that is largely informed as a reaction against evangelicalism. And in my book, I talk about there were a lot of progressive Christians that I know, people in the small group I was in at a church who had grown up in severely legalistic environments, others who had encountered spiritual abuse, others who had witnessed hypocrisy in their churches. And so I think there can be a big element of progressive Christians who are walking away from something. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, when you find somebody r running toward a madhouse, there's a good chance they've just made a splendid escape from another madhouse. And I think that's really <laughs> applicable to progressive Christianity because it seems to be a very reactionary movement against something they found in evangelicalism that just either didn't work out for them or they disagreed with, or they thought was wrong. Uh, yeah, that's, I've said this regularly, progressive Christianity is the other side of the coin of a hardcore legalistic conservative Christianity. It's both legalistic. They're both adding to things in scripture. They're both, they're both uh, pendulum swinging and shaming people who disagree with them. It's, it's, it is that. Uh, that's why, like, Elisa Childers, every time I've ever heard her talk about it, I'm like, yep, because I've seen it. Being raised in a hardcore legalistic environment, I've seen the pendulum swing. Uh, and not many people approach each topic slowly uh, loosening their laces, trying to figure out rigorously, just figure out what they believe. They just baby out with the bathwater. Anyway. Well, Will, I'm going to have to get off here pretty quick, so I'm not going to get to finish the article. And, and Rebecca, if you hear this, it's not because there's something in the article and what remains that I was didn't want to talk about. Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. But let me get through this part because this seems... What should you do if you're a Christian or a church? What can you do to support someone who's experiencing a faith deconstruction or spiritual identity disruption? Stop talking and listen. Don't try to fix them. Remove the beam in your own eye. Study mental health. Show love that does not have strings attached. Don't cover up or ignore abuse. Say no to hypocrisy. Have a willingness to learn and change your mind. I agree with all of that. Some variation of all of that. And then I add to it, theology and apologetics. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> because my buddy Will's life was changed because God, <laughs> through the work of the Holy Spirit, used apologetics. Exactly. Through my own free will. Uh, and I just got to say, if the first one says stop talking and listen, I'm just wondering if the, uh, the author of the article, Rebecca, uh, is, has stopped and listened to people who actually are responding to some of the issues of her view here. I'm just throwing that out there. I do wonder, but yes, we should do that. I agree. I, like I said, there's parts in here I agree with, but a lot of it's also incoherent. So, um, 
I, you know, and by incoherent, I don't mean like that in a mean way. I mean that in a way of like, is a contradictory. It, it's, it's really hard to navigate this and figure out what you mean when, if I take that same standard and flip it around, it, it, you don't hold up to it yourself. So yeah, that's why consistency of thought is also important for it. Theology and apologetics. So, right. uh, anyway, I digress. Well, Will, you're one of my favorite people out there doing this job. And is there anything that you want to say uh, to our audience? Uh, we definitely want now. Here's the thing. It actually doesn't help the church split if you subscribe and then don't watch their content. That can actually hurt them with the YouTube algorithms. But go watch a couple of their videos. Maybe, maybe there's a particular video that we can link here in the description. You can tell me. And if you go and check that out and it looks like something that you're into, and I'm telling you, I listen to it every week, then you need to, then you should go subscribe. Well, I appreciate that. And guys, uh, honestly, just a couple things about our channel. Then we do, uh, we, we're a broad channel. We deal with all sorts of stuff. And I know, I know we would get more subs and more listens if we did certain content, like our rebuttal videos, our, our downloads and everything spike. If I just wanted to make money, that's all I would ever do. But uh, we cover a multitude of things because we just like to have fun. So if you like theology and you like to have fun and kind of cut up and you're okay with even your camp being made fun of and you then you can make fun of us, I have a whole group of people who listen to us that make memes making fun of me all the time. It's about a channel about discussing these things in a way to have fun and bring unity to the church. So if that's something that interests you, please check us out. Um, if not, uh, stay away. I, I, I get enough haters. <laughs> Does it exist as a podcast too? Yep, we are on all audio platforms. Look up The Church Split. It is designed as a YouTube show, so there's a lot of things that we'll sometimes put over the screen. But honestly, you can listen on anything. And if you do listen, please leave us a five-star review. And I always ask that people keep it spicy if they're going to leave me a review because it's fun. So, and then you'll so, get posted and featured. Right below this video is a link to their channel page. Go check it out. And uh, I'm just so glad to have you here, man. And if you out there would like to also take courses perhaps alongside Will at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary and learn from Calvinists like Chris Date and non-Calvinists like Leighton Flowers and people interested in philosophy and apologetics like some of those names and also Tim Stratton or Steve Gregg or, uh, or Chris Featherstone. We've got them, man. You, we are the, we're the school who you've heard of our professors. And so uh, we hope that you'll check us out. I'll put a link to that in the description. I always do. And listen, this has been fun. Will, thanks for coming. Rebecca, we hope me. you found this in a spirit of love and brotherly kindness toward you. And we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Radio. Sorry. <laughs>